We're going to continue this morning working through First Peter. So I'm going to read from First Peter chapter 2 and from verse 11. So it's First Peter chapter 2 and from verse 11. Just two verses. And here Peter says to the church and to us as part of God's church, He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's just come and pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that this is a word that's given to us, not just for interest, not just so that we might understand more, but Lord, it's a word that's given that we might be obedient and that we might reflect your life from our lives. So Lord, we pray, may this word truly just be there and applied in each of our lives now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we arrive at a very important and an interesting point in First Peter. For while it might not look like it, due to the way our, our modern Bible's translations are set up, organised into chapters and into verses, etc., yet the facts are that the two verses that we're looking at here are something of a bridge, something of an introduction to the second half of this letter. And the fact that this letter is is divided into two different halves is marked, not by some kind of precise measuring of verses, but rather that from this point on there's a distinct change of emphasis in 1 Peter. For you see, the, the first half of this book is primarily about theology, That is, it's about our understanding of God with the occasional life application, the occasional call to holiness of life thrown in in the light of what has been revealed to us about our God. The second half of this book, though, is all about holy living. It's all about how, as the people of God, we should live with just the odd bit of of theology strategically placed here and there just to support, to undergird, to add weight to that call to holy living. So that's what we're going to look at now, these two bridge verses. Now in themselves, as you look at these verses, you might wonder why we should limit ourselves in this way. For these verses don't seem to be particularly complex. So why then don't we today tackle a a larger, perhaps apparently more significant part of this book. Well, for one reason and for one reason only, and that's because of the crucial importance of the subjects that these two bridge verses draw our attention to. An importance that's emphasised really by Peter himself in his opening words here. Something that's maybe not as clearly communicated as it perhaps could be but the NIV translation that I'm using, reading to you. Dear friends, I urge you 
as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from evil desires. But you see, that doesn't really get across just how important Peter feels what he is sharing is. It doesn't really get across fully his passion, his intensity here. Better are the older translations. Beloved, I beseech you. And even better still, as is suggested by Wayne Grudem in his excellent commentary on, on First Peter, is the J.B. Phillips translation, which, while using a little bit more up-to-date language, still manages to catch something of just the intensity of Paul. That is, I beg you, as those I love. So what is it then that Peter feels to be so important? What is it, as he changes emphasis here from theology to holiness of life, what is it that he feels so passionately about that it leads him to beg us with such urgency to pay attention to this? Well, it's the all-important link that there is between our lifestyle, between our holiness of life, and our effectiveness in witness in evangelism. Yes, it's the fact that our holiness, or perhaps alternatively our lack of holiness, does have a direct bearing on how effective we will be in sharing our faith. That it doesn't matter how clever we are with words. It doesn't matter how well we can argue. No, because all of this will be undermined. People will not believe the gospel unless they see the gospel being worked out in our lives. And I came across an interesting story during the week that I think is, is relevant to this, that interested me because, you know, I'm, I like Westerns, particularly anything to do with American Indians and the way they live, their way of life. I, I like these kind of things. And, and I found out in many ways that the popular image of the, the bloodthirsty savage doesn't really get it across. They're, they were, and I'm sure they still are at times, very, very thoughtful and wise, but just here's a relevant example. In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the gospel by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. And after, after the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket one of the leading chiefs. Now, among other things, this is what he said. Brother, we are told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbours. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If it does them good makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will consider again what you have said. You see, they want us daft as they sometimes try to make you think in the Westerns. But what I want to do now is just look up with you in turn, although there'll be a bit of overlap between, but just look in turn at these two vitally connected ingredients of the real Christian life, of real Christian living. That is... Holy living that leads to effective evangelism. So first, holy living. Now, now let me just say that 
there are certain points that I'm going to make here and that, that I think need to be grasped that we've already looked at to some extent as we've worked our way through First Peter. So I'm just going to remind you briefly of these things, the important things that we've already learned about holiness, before we move on to look at the very important fresh insights that these verses, I believe, make about this top priority in our Christian living. So, okay, it says here that before we can begin to be holy, before we can start to be holy, we have to consider ourselves, verse 11, aliens and strangers in this world. That is, we have to look then at life. We have to have a a mindset, develop a mindset that sees that this world that we're in now and are a part of now is temporary and passing. And that we, in effect, are just passing through this world and that the things that are of real value are eternal and spiritual. And that what really counts isn't how we're doing in this life. It's our eternal destiny. It's that eternal home in heaven that we're heading towards. Now, you see, it's here that the problem lies for some Christians. That is, that we are so earthly-minded. Our minds are so set on this world. Our values, our expectations, our hopes and ambitions are so this-world-oriented that we are so closed off because of this to God and to the spiritual, except in the most superficial way. And because of this, we cannot even really begin to grow into true holiness in the way that we should and in the way that God so desires that we do. You see, too many Christians today turn the familiar saying on its head that we are too this world-minded, that we are too earthly-minded to be any heavenly use. And that has to change if we're going to grow into holiness. But then Peter goes on to say, goes on to urge us here, as aliens and strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. What's Peter getting at here? What he's getting at is that holiness, growth into Christ-likeness, being all that we have the capacity to be in Jesus Christ, that this is never something that comes easily, that comes naturally. No, rather, this is something that always involves a battle, a struggle. For you see, we know that in Christ, we have, as Romans 6.18 makes clear, that we've been set free from sin. That is, we've been set free from the compelling power of sin. In Christ, we don't have to sin anymore. And yet, even in Christ, in what is still left in us of the old man, which will be around until we leave this earth, in that old man, still, sin still has a very real power and influence in our lives. And you see, if we ignore that, if we are ignorant of that, if we do think that we'll just kind of drift our way into living the kind of holy life that pleases God, well then let me say to you, we're wrong. 
We're getting the spiritual life all wrong. And if we seek to live in this way, we will endure a life of endless spiritual failure and heartbreaking disappointment. No, you see, we have got to actively choose to be holy. In Christ, the power is there. The power is there to enable us to be holy. But we have to choose. We have to put ourselves in the place by our choice where we can lay hold of that power and so use the resources that are ours in Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 6 verse 12, it says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You see, that's about choice. Now you see, I know as I say this, that many Christians want to choose to be holy. Many Christians, they want to live that holy life, the kind of life that is pleasing to God. And we want to do it because we love the Lord, who's given his all for us in Christ. And we want to be able to give something back to him. We want to be able to show him that we love him. And so, yes, it it breaks our hearts then, when again and again we fail him in life. It breaks our hearts when we cannot give back to him that gift of a holy life. But what Peter, I think, supplies us with here is really the key to how more and more we can choose holiness. How more and more we can live that holy life that is pleasing to God. And that is by abstaining from sinful desires that war against your soul. You see, what that word abstain means is to keep away from. Do everything in your power to avoid. As for sinful desires, well, they're laid out for us in the Bible in general terms in places like Galatians 5, 19, 20, the acts of the sinful nature. But you see, what I believe Peter is particularly getting at here is that each one of us has to stay away from completely at any level the things that because of the person we are are the weaknesses that we have. That which would lead me into temptation and then into sin. For these things, Peter says, war against our soul. Yes, the the little things that we do, the little things that we say, that we think, that maybe in themselves seem of little consequence, that maybe don't seem obviously, externally, there and then to lead to terrible things happening, either in our lives or in anybody else's lives, at least not immediately. These things, though, have a hidden, unseen effect within, in our spirit. They make us increasingly spiritually weak, and ineffective. So you see, it's these little choices, day by day, the little things, that affect the big choices, that affect the big decisions we make in life. It's the little choices in little things that so often determine the choices that we will make when faced with the big issues, the big things that crucially affect the direction and the holiness or otherwise of our life. Now you see, I, I firmly believe that a, a major problem in the church of the today is that too many Christians are playing with fire as far as sin and temptation is concerned. Playing with fire in the little areas of life. 
That is what we read or listen to or watch, things that affect our, our minds and our thinking. In what we say, the way we use our tongues, and where we go, the way we use our, our leisure, our lifestyle. Too many Christians today play around with temptation. And you know, I don't think we, we just play around with it, because I believe, and this is kind of subjective, it's impossible to measure, it's just my opinion, I believe that there is a more prevalent occurrence of sin in our generation than a generation ago or so. And I believe that the level of holiness today is significantly low. And do you know what I think has been a major contributor to this? It's a misunderstanding of what Christian freedom is actually really all about. You see, a number of years ago when I became a Christian, there was a lot of legalism around in the church. There was a lot of things that Christians just didn't do. Now, originally, I believe there was good reason for some of this, a lot of this. But, you know, not too many people really thought it through. We just followed the crowd. And that was wrong. But then, out came the war cry. It became a war cry that we are free in Christ. We don't have to be bound by all this negativity and all these rules and regulations. And, and that was right in itself. Where things went wrong, though, was that so many people misunderstood or maybe failed to grasp the actual nature of this freedom. That is that we are set free in Christ, but set free not to please ourselves primarily, but to please the Lord. That's what it's about. So it's not a matter of just doing now what we want to do because we're free in Jesus. No, actually, it's a matter of finding the Lord's will and of doing that and pleasing him. It's that we are set free, but free to please God. And also people didn't seem to grasp and don't seem to grasp, and I think this is particularly relevant to, to what we're looking at here in First Peter, didn't grasp that we are set free not just to choose to do things and certainly not just to indulge ourselves, no, but that we are also set free to choose not to do things, that we are set free to abstain for the sake of our souls. You see, we shouldn't be like some Christians, maybe of the past, who unthinkingly didn't do lots of things because of legalism. But neither should we be like some Christians today, who in a very similarly unthinking way, now just do certain things just to fit in. Because everybody's doing it, and because it makes life easier and simpler. Rather, we should be, this is what God wants us to be, Christians who think and pray and study and then act. Christians who face up to themselves, who know themselves, know their strengths and their weaknesses, and then who choose to do or choose not to do, whichever is appropriate, that which we know will bring glory to God and strengthen our soul. Now, just an example. In the past, when I became a Christian, the vast majority of evangelical Christians in the UK didn't drink, didn't touch alcohol. Today, many Christians say, 
We're free, free to make a choice here. And they choose to drink, and usually they do it responsibly and in moderation. And that's their right. But I want to say, how about saying, I am free, but I choose not to drink, I choose not to indulge myself, I choose not to go along with the crowd, because I can see that alcohol could be a possible source of temptation, perhaps for me, because who knows, and also because I believe that by living in this way, that I can be a positive witness in my society for the glory of God, to a society where, remember, alcohol today causes almost unbelievable damage. What about that choice? A choice not to do. Well, let's move on to look now at the second half of what Peter here sees as a vital link. That is, that holy living, which strengthens our soul, also then leads to effective witness, effective evangelism. Verse 12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that is, such holy lives, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may also see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible does it speak of pagans in heaven glorifying God. It does speak of them being forced to bow the knee to God, but not of them willingly glorifying well, so it seems to me obvious then that what's being spoken of here by Peter is people who at one time were antagonistic to the Lord and antagonistic to his people who accused you of doing wrong and yet who because of what they saw in the lives of Christians, because of their lifestyle, their good deeds, their holiness, people who were brought to the point where they then heard and responded to the gospel and became believers themselves. So you see, there is a vital link between the holiness of a Christian, the holiness of a church community, and our effectiveness in evangelism. But when I then tell you that nationally, nearly every denomination is struggling in evangelism, there are some that are back in the, the trend, say like the the Black Pentecostals and some of the Orthodox churches. You know, today, even those churches like the, the House Church movement and the churches that emerged from that movement, who knew the most marked growth in, in recent decades, much of it sadly by transfer, that's a different story. But when I tell you that even there among these churches, that growth has slowed down to almost zero, then that lets you know how serious the situation actually is. And I don't suppose it will surprise you too much when I say to you that I actually believe that the root of much of the problem here lies in a lack of holiness in the church. A lack of holiness among Christians today. I mean, we've already talked about alcohol. Maybe it's a big thing for me, I don't know. But, you know, when I became a Christian, I had a problem with alcohol. I, I was part of a culture where heavy drinking was the norm. It's just what, what you did. But it became a problem for me. And then in the church, I found a different culture. I found myself among a people where I could find refuge from that. But I wonder, would that be the case today? I'm not saying the whole church, but would there be a group of Christians who could take someone like that 
under their wing. And I also remember when I was in Edinburgh, in the church there, we had a youth pastor who got involved in a, in a university mission. Where when he was in the university during that week, while he was there, a high percentage of the Christian union members in that university shared with him that they either were or had been actively involved in a sexual relationship during their time at university. But I want to ask you, how does that commend the gospel to an already cynical student population? What kind of groundwork did that lay for that work of mission? Because, you see, it isn't only what we say, it's what we do, and it's the impression that we give that counts. And then, just to leave young people alone, because it's terrible picking on them all the time, I remember again in a church I was involved in, a Christian man who I knew and thought the world of, he was in his 50s at this point, fine Christian man. But one summer, he went on holiday with his fiancée. Don't ask me why, it was his fiancée in his 50s, but that's a different story. They went away together and they shared a cottage alone together. And he assured everybody, he was very open, he assured everyone, me included, that it was all innocent and it was all above board. And you know, I'm certain, I'm sure it was. But the point is, would the average non-Christian, would the people they worked with, would the world around actually believe that? Would they believe that there was nothing going on? You see, I believe that as Christians, it's not enough for us to know that we're not doing wrong. No, we also have to take care to ensure that we are not given the impression of doing wrong. Because we are responsible in the way that we live. Not only for ourselves and our own holiness of life, but also for the lives of other people, for the eternal destiny of others. Because by the way that we live, each one who confesses the name of Jesus Christ, we will either recommend the gospel or we will bring the gospel into disrepute. As is often said, a Christian will always be a witness for the gospel. The question is, will we be a good witness or a bad witness? You know, the old translation of 1 Thessalonians 5.22 is avoid even the appearance of evil. The NIV translation is avoid every kind of evil. I commend the older translation as in this instance being closer to Paul's intention. That we are called as God's people as far as we are able. We are called to make sure that there is nothing in our lives that would cause someone to stumble or to fall or to turn away from the gospel of life. And you know, I pray, I pray that I will never hear anyone say that I went along to Hamilton Baptist Church, but I was put off by the backbiting, maybe, the dishonesty, the immorality, by the outright hypocrisy that I found there. But what I will, I pray, 
hear more and more people say is that I went to Hamilton Baptist and I sensed among the people there something different. And I began to search. And ultimately, I then found the one who makes the difference. I found Jesus Christ. You know, I know that here we want to be effective in evangelism. We want to see many people saved. Well, I hope that today you've seen that this will not happen to the degree that we want until more and more we are a holy people. Holiness and evangelism here are linked together by Peter. Holiness and evangelism belong together. May they be seen to be working together among the people of God here. Let's pray. Father, we, we just here we need to recognize that how we live, each Christian, is important. Sometimes maybe we think, what's my life? What do I matter? How does the way that I live matter? Lord, it matters tremendously. Each one of us are being used by you. Each one of us, our lives speak to others of you. Lord, help us to seek by the way that we live to bear a good witness to Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.